Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesmadel. Hello, everybody. It's Eric Klein here, and I love I love radio. I'm so happy to be here to talk about community radio and college radio again for another hour with you. And Jennifer Waits joins us from San Francisco. Hello. Greetings, everyone. And Jennifer, you were recently at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters annual convention, and so you'll give us some updates there at sort of a high level about what is, what's there at the, at the cutting edge of, of community radio, and, the, and, and you're going to connect it, though, of course, to community radio's past. So you're going to connect some dots for us a little later in the show. Yes, I love connecting the past to the present and the future, so... I, I think about that always. <laughs> and, and, you know, Community Radio has been, has been on a journey in our lifetime. It's really, it's really gone from, uh, from one kind of radio station and one group of stations to, to something. To many to, different To a different types. kind of a constellation. Great diversity, yes. Yeah. And then you also had an opportunity to, to visit some college stations in San Diego because that's where the NFCB conference <laughs> was. Because Jennifer is not going to get on a plane and go to a city without seeing what a radio station looks like when when she gets there i know it would be very painful if i did not see a station um so yeah i saw four <laughs> so we, we'll talk a little bit about that but first up you know we have a little bit of action around low power fm for folks who may not have heard this uh maybe first time listener to the show or haven't listened in a while low power fm stations are non-commercial stations by design that operate with 100 watts of power. So they're inexpensive. They don't cover a huge footprint, but that makes them kind of easy to to wedge in to the dial and to uh, go into like large metroplexes and maybe help uh, provide community radio to uh, a cluster of neighborhoods and into very specific communities. The group of low power, the, the, the growth of low power FM in the last decade or so. Two decades. Has really put the lie to the... To the uh, to the original sin of Radio Survivor, to the concept that radio was a dinosaur that was going right. extinct in our lifetimes, it really brought a whole new energy. Hundreds to community and hundreds radio. and hundreds of new uh, non-commercial stations have gone on the air since the year. Quite 2000. possibly, if you're listening to the sound of her voice on terrestrial radio, you might be listening to us on very a low power FM station. Yeah. So uh, now you know. Uh, now that we have all these hundreds of stations on the air. It starts to realize that sometimes there's certain issues or minor problems crop up. And so advocates for the low power FM service, people who work with the FCC and done a lot of work in Washington, periodically make proposals to the FCC saying, hey, you know, there you could make a couple little changes in the rules or maybe let them do this or change this. And that'll make things a I little love, bit easier. It's such a beautiful world to imagine that there is times where good faith critiques are made of a system not to tear it down not to get your you know not to win your right. your your golden calf but simply to fix something to make it better and using government yeah, to well do so. you know i mean because most of the people who work at the fcc are career bureaucrats yeah we spend so much time dumping on, on the, uh, well on the but bureaucracy. you're really only dumping on three of them yeah right you know three the people who get who yeah. get dumped on are the commissioners right because they are the political appointees who are often there carrying the water uh, for the parties and the, and the interests of, of yeah, the people who the sponsored them in there. The, yeah, Whereas yeah. in places like the Media Bureau, which is the bureau which oversees broadcast at the FCC, these are people who've been in this their entire lives. They joined the FCC largely because they're actually passionate about broadcasting, they're passionate about engineering, and, and most of these changes are, are, are about engineering. 
Right when when you're going to talk to these low power FM yeah, changes about these changes, it's, it's about engineering. Cool. So, and principally, we have to thank uh, Michelle Bradley, who is the principal behind Rec Networks, R E C Networks, which is an engineering uh, firm out of Maryland that has done a lot of work on behalf of low power FM stations, a lot of advocacy. And so Michelle had put in a proposal to the FCC for many many changes, and the FCC has decided to propose to accept some of them. And so this came out on July 11th, and it's the Media Bureau, which put out a set of changes which needs to be taken up by the commissioners who will vote on it. Okay. The likelihood of there being a big no or big changes in that time period is not not huge, but it can always happen. If they vote to accept this proposal, and it goes out for commenting, where members of the public, members of the broadcast industry, any interested party can comment on it. They'll look at those comments, see if that means they should make some other changes. And then ultimately, the, these proposals can become part of you the said rules. These are engineering tweaks to the yeah, to how low power through, them yeah, functions. Yeah, this. Yeah, I think. And are uh, any of them controversial, Paul? Everything is controversial. <laughs> so radio, it depends. It depends in, on in controversial with whom. So uh, likely not controversial by and large within the low power FM community. So amongst the community of people who support low power FM or who are operating stations, these are not controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, they may be controversial with the, the commercial broadcast industry, which operates translator stations. I mean, everyone in, in, in radio operates translator stations, which are repeater stations that are a lot like low power FM stations. Yeah. They operate at low power. A little bit of turf. They have wars, the same, right? right. There's a, there's they operate a, um, the same rules. It's a it's a it's a zero sum game out there in the terrestrial radio landscape. But I, I will name one constituency that will find that will probably find this very controversial. And these are the folks, and there's not many of them, who operate analog low power television stations on Aww. channel six. Good old Franken FM. Franken FMs, I call them backdoor FMs. Uh, and not every one of these stations is operated in this way, but there's a neat phenomenon. You know you're Gen X if you discovered one when you were a kid. Yeah, that where Channel Six on television, if it's analog, you can hear it at the far left end of your FM dial. It's a very unique little engineering fact. There's a, it's how the spectrum works. Yeah, because they butt up against each other. Uh, the television, the analog television spectrum, and the and the analog radio spectrum. Now. This phenomenon is mostly not experienced in most places because uh, full-power TV stations went digital yeah. uh, 10 years ago. Low-power TV stations were given an additional uh, more than 10 years to, where they could stay analog. Stay on the air. Before they, stay analog. Okay. Be, uh, w- right. And not trans transfer to digital which which is important for the extremely unique and special little snowflake stations that are on analog television but are operating as radio yeah so the fcc says that there's about getting, 20 getting listeners on the radio on purpose yeah it says there's about 26 stations currently functioning like this in the united states one of the best known ones is in chicago at 87.7 fm an oldie station called me tv radio <laughs> uh, which is operated by the people who run MeTV. MeTV oh. is, is yeah. I love, I love it. I love the TV station. Right. Yeah. It's it's one of these. It's a digital subchannel. So you know when TV went digital, uh, you know all of a sudden the broadcaster got extra channels. You had if you were like Channel Seven, you also got Channel Seven point one, Seven point two, Seven point three. 
and they needed all something to fill these extra channels. Yeah. And so this company, Weigel Broadcasting out of Chicago, created uh, basically it's sort of like in the spirit of old TV land from the 80s uh, when TV land was mostly reruns. Yeah. On cable. And so it's, but you know, this is over with, the air TV this for is free. over the air TV for free. It's ad supported. And in that spirit, you don't, you don't need the internet, kids. You they don't, took, you yeah. don't well, need and, to pay your cell it, phone bills to watch TV. Some of it, yeah, some of it is stuff you can't find other places. Like we saw an entire weekend marathon of Streets of San Francisco, which was yeah. right. incredible. And otherwise, you would have to. They run Star know, Trek and they run these like DVD. Star Trek that's been uh, upgraded to HD. Mm. Um, and so Weigel brought, bought this low-power television station that had been bumped around between owners in Chicago and, that operates on Channel 6 and started MeTV Radio. And, and their format is playing it's playing oldies, but not the ones that are in rotation right. now. Like a new kind of oldies radio. Right. So there's still the hits the of yesteryear, but you know, for reasons... And by yesteryear... Now it's... Like the 70s yeah. and the 60s and the early 80s. Because <laughs> when I was growing up, oldies radio meant... Right, the, the the early sixties, the late fifties. But all these songs that, for some reason or another, even though they might have been a number one hit in nineteen seventy two, are no longer really played right. in oldies radio. That kind of stuff, and it's turned out to be very popular. It, it beats out a lot of full power stations in the Nielsen ratings uh, in Chicago. Yeah, so that's fun. kind of the it's a fun station, the big example station out there. But there's you, lots of other. When ones. you taught me about that station, I went and looked looked it up on YouTube and found an extremely enthusiastic radio fan just just like streaming. In his car, listening to this station and just being so pleased about each each musical surprise as right. it came on the air. Because it, it's so rare, Paul, unfortunately. So, Paul, will that station then cease in 2021? It will um, cease in 2021, yes. So, low-power TV stations must convert to digital by July 13th, 2021. Now, there's been... These lines in the sand have been drawn a few times before now. So, there's always a chance that some last-minute thing could change this date. However, what the FCC has proposed to do, though, is to, in the interim, between now and 2021, Mm -hmm. to allow low-power FM stations, or really any FM station, to encroach more on those Channel 6 signals. So basically, right, every station has kind of a footprint that it covers. And when you're saying station, are you saying radios and television well, stations? stations are stations? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when you have a station on the FM dial, let's say at 88.1, uh, you don't put a station at 88.3. It's right. too close together. They, they, you could cause interference. So when you have a channel six operating analog in, in the city in which you're talking in the city about. in which you're, you, 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 you exist, you're not going to see a station. At the low end of the FM dial, at 88.1, essentially. This is why we have an FCC. <laughs> right. And a station like 88.3 might also not be able to be there, or they could only be in certain locations mm-hmm. because of potential interference to that channel six. However, Rec Networks, as well as uh, NPR and Prometheus Radio Project, have argued to the FCC that that protection really doesn't need to exist anymore. That uh, that's because, one, most uh, t- channel six stations are digital now. Um, and they don't need the same kind of protections as analog what stations. What number do you too. say? We're talking about like 20 stations that are left in our country? Well, no, 26 that are functioning as FM stations. Yeah. There's more Channel okay. 6s than that. There's just 26 functioning as radio stations. Uh-huh. And then the argument they also make is that modern radio receivers and television receivers are far more efficient okay. and selective. So the kind of uh, – because te- the television stations were required to have a bigger berth 
than an FM station. Mm -hmm. They require more protection. Okay. And they argue that your modern TV receiver um, isn't going to have a problem with FM stations being a little closer on the dial or closer in geographic proximity. Okay. So the FCC just took this up and and, and provisionally agreed and is basically saying between now and and July of 2021, uh, any FM station, which includes low-power FM stations, may apply for a waiver if they need to, say, uh, boost power mm. for a reason, move their antenna site. Um, that, that's a pretty common thing um, for any number of reasons. Or if, they, if there is even a, another window for low-power FM, meaning people can apply for a uh, license or a license for a full-power FM station or a license for translator stations, that they might be able to encroach more closely on those Channel 6 stations that still exist so you're saying between that, now and 2021. That somewhere out there, there's a radio station that could uh, boost its power and be heard a little or, or, farther afield. Yeah, exactly. Or, or maybe it, it needs to move towers. Yeah. Maybe, you know, there's a real estate that are the, the place they rent is being uh, taken away yeah. and it would help if they could be able to move. There's a number of reasons. So this is an, an interesting thing that's being proposed. Um, and, and of course, the FCC says by uh, July 13, 2021, um, then those protections would go away entirely and you wouldn't need a waiver anymore. And so that would open up uh, more stations being able to be at, say, 88.1 FM. But it's also amongst the reasons why 87.9 FM isn't mostly licensed. There's like a couple legacy stations at 87.9 FM out there. But but that might potentially open up the FM band. I'm, I'm probably stepping out of my full knowledge at this moment when I say that. So that's a proposal. Um, as well, and this is interesting, the FCC is proposing that... Uh, Low power FM stations, in particular, get to use directional antennas. Okay. So antennas can be directional, meaning they point a signal in one direction, or they're sort of omnidirectional, radiates equally. Most low power FM stations use an omnidirectional antenna. Uh, they're less expensive, they're less complex. Um, and the assumption behind the service, because it's one that was proposed to be low in complexity, inexpensive, is around that. But there are situations, especially in urban markets, where a station might be able to get a little bit or bit better coverage uh, with its power level if it could kind of point its signal in a particular direction. And the FCC has provisionally said, yeah, you know what? That's probably a good idea. Another interesting thing the FCC says is that maybe low-power FMs can have booster stations. A booster station basically is just kind of like a little amplifier. And so it can be somewhere within your signal area where you would anticipate to get the station, but for reasons of like hills and hmm. geography, you don't. And it rebroadcasts, it basically amplifies the signal on the same frequency. Okay. So this is different than a translator station, which is always on a different station and is more of like a repeater. Generally speaking, low-power FMs have not been permitted to have booster stations. However, uh, there's about five waivers that have been granted so far where the FCC is... Uh, taken up special requests from stations and said, hey, maybe we could use this. They said, yeah, we'll grant you a waiver to the rules and allow you to have one. It's nice to imagine a world in which uh, low-power FM stations have that much uh, bandwidth, as you say. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they do. The ability to build and grow. It's great. And so in this case, it's not really growing. In this case, it's really a case in which... Growing the strength within the neighborhood. You should expect that we would get the station over there in this neighborhood, and you don't because of of tall buildings sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and you would be able to put a booster in there. So the idea here is that um, you wouldn't have to get a waiver. You could just apply to the FCC for this booster, and based upon your engineering, they would tell you you qualify or you don't. 
Um, as, and in a final thing, you know, I mentioned how stations sometimes have to move. So like a low power FM station, there's, there's particular rules for it. And, and part of it is due to the fact that as a low power station, you're expected to cover a fairly small geographic area, hyper local kind of station. And so you're licensed to this area. And so if you said, no, we want to move this, uh, 50 miles away, well, you're really, you know, that's not really what you what you propose to do in the first place. That's a new low power FM station. But because of the fact that you know people understand that uh, you might you know you might move studios, you might need to move your transmitter. Uh, generally speaking, a station can move around five point six kilometers pretty easily. You still have to contact the FCC, but you don't have to go through very much paperwork. Um, the FCC has taken up the request, though, that they might broaden this a little bit, that they might allow you to move more than that 5.6 kilometers if you can demonstrate that your that your signal coverage will be about the same, hmm. right? So the idea is that, again, it's not a matter of so you're trying to move your station to cover new neighborhoods, but you might be renting a place and need to move. Uh, it might be, you know, it might be in the middle of a gentrifying area and they're going to tear it down and build condos. You need to move, and the only place you can find is 6.2 kilometers away. But if you can demonstrate that you will otherwise have basically the same signal coverage, you you may be able to do that. And so altogether, the, these are kind of the, uh, the the small changes, but all in you know, which basically will give low power FM station operators, community radio operators, a little more flexibility in dealing with the circumstances of everyday life, like needing to move, possibly being able to tighten their engineering. Or down the line, be able to, uh, you know, possibly even expand a little bit based upon uh, not having to protect those Channel 6 yeah. TV stations Again, I'm just as glad, much. Again, I'm glad you brought this up, Paul, just to remind me and the listeners uh, that the FCC has a job to do and it, the job is to support... Is to support broadcasting. Support broadcasting. And that includes low-power FM operators. And I think it's also important to note, as I've said a and couple times And they do that here, job. Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the part that I needed to hear today. And that there is a lot of – there is collaboration, right? And that I've mentioned waivers, right? That there are stations out there who have gone to the FCC and said, you know, we've got special circumstances. We could use a little tweaking or bending of the rules to help meet those circumstances. And the FCC has said yes. And they often do so when um, the stations are helped along by a group like Rec Networks or the Prometheus Radio Project or other competent engineers. And engineers, radio engineers, often keep a, keep the FCC's media bureau on speed dial to be able to call and say, hey, is this kosher? Do you think this might be possible? I want to submit this. It's not, you know, people often think, think of the FCC as this monolith as if you couldn't call them and ask a question. Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and I do like to put out there that I don't think people should fear the FCC, especially broadcasters in particular. You know, everyday people who, are, who don't run stations, sure, we don't have much of a relationship with the FCC. But if you have a broadcast license, that's a relationship. And you shouldn't just live in fear or cower, and you shouldn't yeah. be afraid to ask questions. Yeah, just because of the political appointments, the, the, you know, the leaders who, who have... Uh, Direct right. contact with the executive You're probably branch. not going to be get 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 Chairman Pi on the phone. Yeah. That is probably likely, but you but you can probably get somebody in the uh, radio department of the media bureau. I do want to note one proposal that was not taken up, and this is one that's been out there for a long time, um, at least uh, six years if not longer, and that's a proposal to allow some stations to increase their power all the way up to 250 watts. Wow. So currently, low power FM. Uh, the maximum output is is 100 watts effective radiated power. There has been a proposal um, supported by Rec Networks, amongst many, 
to boost that to 250 watts, and the FCC has not taken that up. Would they even be LPFMs anymore? Why not? L, I mean, L, 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 low includes 250 now. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think the, the idea is that there are stations serving more rural areas where right. there isn't so much congestion in the dial, where they very easily could boost up to that kind of power that would meaningfully increase their service. Um, and, yeah. and, 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 and still really at a relatively low cost. And when you like double power from 100, 250 watts, you don't automatically double your signal area. It's much more complex than that. Yeah. It's not like boom, double the size, but it would give stations, uh, especially maybe in areas where their signals kind of fringe, it would definitely make the signal more receivable, but the FCC chose not to take that up. And so that's just some of the action that we may be seeing at the Federal Communications Commission to help support and and keep this little service of community radio, low power FM, going. And uh, so, go so ahead, what's Jeff. the pathway forward for that? What's the timeline? So uh, basically, what will have to happen is probably at their next public meeting, the FCC will uh, have this on the docket, and the commissioners will decide to. Uh, vote on this package there could be changes minor changes between now and then a commissioner could decide they would want minor changes between now and then but you know again these are these would be a proposal so they'd be voting out that we accept the proposal once it's accepted there's a 30-day window for people to make comments after that there's another 30-day window for people to, to reply to the comments that other people made and then after that the fcc decides uh what the final will be so sometimes they'll take up the um Sometimes they'll, you know, take up the comments and say, oh, someone made a really, a really great suggestion here and we're thinking of integrating it. And sometimes if there's really massive changes, you go through another reply comment phase uh, or another comment phase. But in most cases, it's pretty minor changes and the FCC would vote it in or not vote it in as the case may be. So, you know, we still won't see the changes for 90 days at the very least. Uh, beginning pretty much now. So this is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesmendel. You just heard from Jennifer Waits. Eric Klein is here with me. And uh, we often cover community radio. and We like people to know a little bit more of sometimes this minutia uh, because it's really, I think, Eric, you, you summarize it. It demonstrates that that stations just don't go there and that's it. They're leaving, living, breathing entities. Uh, they are in dialogue with the Federal Communications Commission. The Federal Communications Commission is there to serve all stations and is often balancing different constituencies and balancing the needs and desires of different groups, but does sometimes serve the needs of community stations or low-power FM stations, as as is this case. Um, now I think we can travel down virtually to San Diego, California, Jennifer, where you we're recently at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters uh, Conference. And yes. So the National Federation of Community Broadcasters is basically a group that represents community broadcasters, both uh, full power and low power FM stations. It's been around for nigh on at least 30 years, if not more. And they have this annual convention where stations come through. And about, about how many folks were there? Around 200. Okay, so these are primarily people who are, are, most of them are probably professionals at the stations, managers, program directors, etc. Yeah, uh, people working in community radio, some college radio stations, and and then, you know, they're exhibitors too, so affiliated people in the radio industry are there as well. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, there's a variety of conferences and panels I've been to an NFCB or two in my time, um, you know, and I know that it's often there are things about how to run a station, you know, some things that are very tactical engineering or how to manage people, how to uh, program effectively and things like this. But sometimes, you know, they also cover kind of kind of bigger umbrella topics and, and you participated on a panel uh, of that sort. Yes, I was on a panel about the past, present, and future of community radio, which is sort of a daunting topic, especially since I was given the future portion of that panel. <laughs> um, just all, but, just just the whole. Just <laughs> so, Jennifer, what is the future? Yeah, and and but and yeah, why don't you summarize the past and the present? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Jennifer the Magnificent will. Uh... Well, and. I was on the panel with Laura Schnicker from University of Maryland and Mike Lupica from WPRB, which is the Princeton University radio station. And Both former and guests three, of Radio Survivor, if I'm yes. not mistaken. And the three of us are all very interested in radio history, preserving radio history, and evangelizing um, the preservation of, of radio history. So that was the backdrop of the entire panel was – was history and preservation. So while I was speaking about the future, I was also grounding the future in the history of community and college radio, sort of reminding people where we've come from and, you know, the incredible contributions that college and community radio have made to radio history in general. So, you know, Often the mainstream radio story does not include community and college radio. So yeah, well, we just it was a uh, uh, two episodes ago where Matthew Lassar, who's uh, writes for Radio Survivor, founder of Radio Survivor, and a historian who's written three books on radio, admitted that if he had had more time to get to know Jennifer Waits before he wrote his first book, he probably would have dug up more information regarding the history of college radio and how it connects to um to those to those uh, the histories of Pacifica radio that he was writing like college radio has always been there in yeah. the United States it's always been a part of the radio landscape which is you know so great to hear that and it just affirms uh you know affirms my desire to continue telling this story to you know remind people of of this rich history so so that's part of what I talked about and and I also incorporated what I've learned from all of my radio or from, you know, my extensive radio station touring. So I've been to now I keep forgetting the number because it's mm-hmm. constantly changing. But um, around 160, I visited around 160 or I've written up visits to around 160 radio stations all over the U.S. and also Ireland. And. So I incorporated some of what I've learned, some of what I've been inspired by from these visits and talked about how how that might give us a glimpse about the future of radio based on some of the interesting and innovative things happening at radio stations right now. I think especially with Low Power FM, you know, this huge growth of radio stations, uh, we're seeing some experimentation and some different sorts of things that mm. I think can provide a lot of creative ideas for for all kinds of stations to learn from you know i think we're at this interesting time you know you you connecting the past to the present like this because in in kind of our social media world in our internet world right where 
it, it feels like the the zeitgeist shifts at a minute. It feels as though often in online culture, people jump on new and interesting ideas quickly, right? Something quirky. You know, we say it goes viral, but I think that's even almost not right. It, it, it's sort of a almost it's an imprecise and almost antiquated term, I would argue. Hmm. But that you know, the, you, it depends on what kind of spheres you run in, right? But, you know, it'll be like, hey, look at this cool thing we found online. And then you see 20 other, like, repeat articles about it. And often these are things that I think are quirky of the sort that you two take for granted in college radio. You would take for granted in community radio. Uh, You know, hey, look, this person only plays 78 records on their podcast. Hmm. You know. Um, Oh, wait, look at this. This is, uh, you know, this is a show that's nothing but cassette tapes. You're like, well, I think there's probably dozens of those shows, and I can think of several that I that I off the top of my head. I had one in college, you know, <laughs> and 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 they still exist, right? And it's interesting to me that, and in one of the the criticisms that has existed for decades about college radio in particular, but also often uh, more scrappy, lower powered, or volunteer run community radio stations has been that they're amateurish. Right. And then often I think that the line or the between sort of eclectic, interesting, experimental, right, and innovative Mm -hmm. to a veteran broadcaster just looks amateurish. Right. (laughs) Because that's not how you do radio. How you do radio is, you know, time checks every, you know, on every break. Uh, don't talk too long and get to the next song, whatever the program director tells you to do. And everything else is sort of amateurish or cute, but not innovative. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's the case, but I also feel like I see examples of, of, you know, more mainstream stations, whether they're commercial or public radio stations, taking cues from college and community radio and, and doing things that they wouldn't have done in the past that, you know, might seem a little different, like live performances and integrating technology and, you know, doing quirkier shows. Or, or iHeart now has two AM stations that are entirely programmed out of their podcast roster, hmm. for instance. Yeah. So it's, you know, the state of things is, you know, people have to innovate and experiment and uh so of course you're going to see things that have been uh, that people have been doing in these more innovative stations for decades and decades. So, so so what are some examples? I mean, what are some examples that you think point to the future? Things that are happening today in non-commercial radio that you think um, are are examples or at least bellwethers. Well, I think so. One thing is that um, that you know. We've talked about this before. You can't expect your audience to just sort of show up. So I'm seeing more examples of stations who are bringing people into the station as well as going to where the people are. So examples are things like KPFG, a low-power FM station in Seattle, had a shed in a neighborhood. So they had a small studio within a neighborhood so you could be walking down the street and notice this community radio station and maybe the door would be open and you could wander in. Um, So, you know, they went to where 
a neighborhood where people are. Mm -hmm. And then a big budget example would be KEXP, also in Seattle, a public radio station with a lot of money. When they built their new headquarters, they included this whole community area. So within the building, there's a cafe, a record store, a bunch of seating, and then there's a window to the studio. So you could be in there doing other things, but you have an eye on the DJ in the studio. And so you see where the radio is happening. Um, so yeah, I, I don't I think, think what's interesting to me, you know, is I hear what I'm hearing from you, Jennifer, is that they're, they're sort of making a point to, to, to extend the invitation, right? It's one thing exactly. to be, because what I've heard in community radio for, for 20 some years has been, well, we're accessible, meaning you can find us. But it's a different thing to make the invitation more active, right? Exactly. And I think this has been a concept, I think, for most of community radio's time. I remember back at WEFT at Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, which went on the air in 1981. I heard these stories once I started there in about 1994 of the radio parties they would throw in the mid-80s. And open the doors and invite people, like really invite people in and say, hey, we're downtown Champaign. They open the doors. Come on by. Um, and these are sort of, I think, probably more, a uh, little less uh, loosey-goosey sort of instantiations of that impulse, which I think has been around for quite some time. Um, oh, but, yeah. but, but 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 very unique to non-commercial radio. I think college stations have also done these sorts of things, maybe often more oriented towards their campus communities, but are, but are no less relevant. Yeah, and I mean, and there there are things that lots of stations have done over the years, like um, you know, doing remote broadcasts, having radio station vans, even commercial radio stations. You know, would have radio station vans, and you know, all that I think is awesome. And and I've been at colleges where they have a radio station van. So yeah, getting out there within the community. uh, But I like I like this next level where the community can actually be invited into the studio or you design your studio so that it's within the community is a way to make that relationship even stronger. Right. Because if you wander into a radio station, any radio station as a member of the public, there may or may not be somebody who's there to greet you ready to, or anything for you to do. And that's not because they don't care, but it's because their job is to broadcast. And maybe right now, uh, somebody just wandering in is in the way for lack yeah, of a better way of putting I mean, it. It, it takes a dedicated staff person working the door, you know, behind a desk whose whose job it is to greet people. Or and, thinking about putting in spaces that are specifically for yeah. that welcoming. Right? I love the idea. Well, oh, go ahead. Well, in some of these public radio, so KEXP, you know, they have a whole system in place for public mm-hmm. tours. Uh, KCRW right. just designed a, a grand new headquarters. They can afford the volunteer coordinator position, the door person position. Yeah, so I think stations like that, like they're intentionally building new spaces that have, you know, a performance space and, you know, are actively encouraging people to come in. And so that's part of the infrastructure is is figuring out how they're going to deal with, um, you know, they want people to come into their space. So that's mm-hmm. going to be, you know, part of how they, part of the whole um, idea is going to have a system in place so that they can they can manage that. And that runs. Because you're right, it can be disruptive. And that runs counter, though, to the predominant winds in in broadcast, generally speaking. Yeah, because, not only are the doors locked, but you'd be lucky if there's a door. Well, right, because the FCC got rid of the local studio rule. 
Right. So there used to be a requirement, at the very least, that you had a local studio. Now a radio station could literally be a computer in a box. A computer in a closet, right, at a transmitter. Exactly. Um, I I love the idea, uh, Jennifer, you mentioned this community radio uh, station in Seattle that sets up in a shed. So it's a, you know, you're walking through a neighborhood somewhere and you can find the station. It made me um, imagine somewhere I'm sure it's being done, but just that uh, stations that can't set up in a shed could even just plan on having – uh, like field trips where the radio that they make, generally speaking, in one room in their station could be made out in the world somewhere, in a coffee shop, in a so that in a library. Just the idea that anywhere where there's a good internet connection, perhaps, you could um, you could have the station take a little trip. And there's a long history outdoors. of this. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, you've, you have longstanding programs. Yeah, festivals. Uh, where stations have run from cafes in particular it's, uh, for a long time at um, – Loyola University Station uh, in in Chicago, they had a program called Live from the Heartland Cafe, which is literally from a, a restaurant in yeah. the Rogers Park neighborhood called the Heartland Cafe. Um, I believe it's I believe the cafe may be closed and that the station that that shows no longer on the air, but that ran for like twenty years. Um, you know, but I think you know no, noting it as a trend, what you're seeing here, Jennifer, is it's going from like a good idea to stations starting to take it up in the very design. Right. Yeah. So I think that's something to pay attention to. And definitely something that I that I like to see. And, and I like that there are big budget and small budget examples of it, right. too. That makes right. me happy. <laughs> you can have a multi-million dollar facility or you can have a shed. Exactly. <laughs> and maybe maybe even less than a shed. Even a shed oh. it sometimes seems big budget to... And so what are some other trends you see in today's, you know, stations that you think are are marking the future of community radio? So I think this has always been the case with with college radio in particular, that technology has been used, you know, ever changing technology has been used to the benefit of radio. And it's being used to increase both access to radio, but also increase the amount of content that's available. So a few examples of that are our friends at KVCB LP, which is the high school radio station in Vacaville um, that I obsess over. So it's a high school radio station that's low power FM, and they also are on HD. Mm-hmm. So they, to the best of our knowledge, the only low power FM station to broadcast in HD. Yeah. So they take advantage of their HD streams and in a really interesting way where one of the streams is all student content, including student music compositions, wow. uh, radio art, etc. One stream is sort of nostalgia radio, like old time radio, radio drama. Uh, another stream is information, school information from the school where it broadcasts from. And then the fourth is is their regular uh, over-the-air stream. Uh, so that's a way for them to be putting out a bunch of different types of content. Um, so I think that's an interesting way of using technology. And then there are a lot of stations who utilize multiple web streams in order to have more content, have more programmers, but also to satisfy different audience constituencies. So... KGNU in Colorado 
the radio station has a mix of of public affairs and music programming over their regular FM signal. And in addition to that, they have a 24-7 music stream on their website that they call After FM because they realize that some of their listeners might really be interested primarily in music. Yeah. So if there's public affairs or news programming on the air that they're not interested in, they, they can really just focus on listening to the stream. And and so not all stations are able to afford, you know, you see in public radio stations that might have different channels. So they may have one FM channel that's all news and one that's all jazz yeah. or classical. But, and that's even itself kind of a rare phenomenon, frankly, uh, that, that there, there are very few public stations that have multiple channels, but they do exist. Well-heeled. Well-heeled. Yeah, well-heeled. Perhaps. I mean, uh, you know, what's interesting to me about this is that in community radio in particular, right, where especially a station like KGNU, which has been around for decades, for a long time they were the only community radio station in their area. And that meant that you're trying to slice up that 168-hour pie to satisfy many different people. Right. Right. And that means, yes, we're going to do some music. Yes, we're going to do jazz, some public affairs. A little bit of jazz, a little bit of talk. Right. <laughs> and a little bit of, of lots of different yeah. things. Right. And, and and in many ways, it's, it's a lovely quilt. But as time has gone on in a lot of places, now you know, a city like Boulder, I'm sure, but certainly here in like Portland, Oregon, or San Francisco, California, you now have low power FMs coming in, able to provide different service in a community radio sort of fashion. And you find that part of your constituency isn't listening on FM anymore, even, right? That they're principally listening to you online because that's how they listen to radio and music and sound. And busting out of that the confines of the 168 hours, right. I think is a very smart thing. Because while it isn't free to broadcast on the internet, um, it is cheaper than than getting a whole new full power FM license. Yeah. It's you can't get a new low low power FM license at this moment in time. If you're a low power FM station, you can only have one license, um, so you can't create new program streams that way. I I just wanted to bring up since we're talking about Jennifer Waits's uh, panel discussion about the history of college radio and community radio at and the, the NFCB and the future. I just wanted to. Uh, teach i just wanted to repeat a a lesson that i was taught here on radio survivor that college radio somewhere at least a college radio station if not um nearly a half a dozen college radio stations were the first to stream on the internet in the history of radio and i learned that from jennifer yeah first to simulcast uh their radio signal on the internet so just to just to drive home the point that college radio uh I, it's hard to imagine what the next first to stream on the radio <laughs> is going to be, but that's uh, one of the delightful reasons to pay attention to what goes on at college radio, not to mention to keep the lights on at college radio stations all around the country because you don't know what comes next, what, right. what the next uh, good idea is to change radio. But I, I like this idea that stations are, are trying to note what their listeners want Right. And noting that there are some listeners who are more interested in some programming than others. And rather than than saying, well, just forget that, finding ways to satisfy it in a way that that doesn't compromise the fundamental service. Right. Um, And also in many community radio stations, especially in bigger cities, you know, again, the 168 hours you have a week isn't enough to go around. 
meaning there's far more demand for airtime in different types of programming than you may have the ability to, to give out. Or right. you only are able to give it out by slicing things so thinly that it's difficult to listen to. And creating alternate program streams allows you to, to help develop new talent, try out new things, uh, perhaps at a lower uh, cost or lower risk than maybe uh, it does doing on your primary FM airstream. So uh, yeah, it's a great so thing it's- to see. So web streams, HD channels, uh, other uses of technology are podcasting. Uh, there's an online community station, K- KPISS in Brooklyn, and they've launched a podcasting network and a studio and an RV. So that's sort of a combination of both trends I'm talking about where they're going out into the field, but also expanding their comment or their content by having a podcasting network. And it's something we've seen principally really in non-commercial radio. Only now are we starting to see commercial radio networks experimenting even with podcasts. But, you know, we're really not seeing it at the station level so much as we're seeing it kind of at the at the at the level of enormous networks. Whereas I think this is where we're seeing it, you know, in in service of particular constituencies and particular communities um, rather than thinking of it in, in kind of national, international terms. Yeah, and you know, at the conference, I saw another panel where a station talked about a podcast network that they were starting at their college radio station. So it, it's definitely something that's happening there at the non-commercial level, and and it's a way to to also turn maybe turn some people on to a radio station who maybe turned on to podcasting already, but not yeah. radio. Yeah. So it, it's an entry point for some people to introduce a technology to your station that uh, that people are using outside of radio. So uh, it's kind of interesting the way podcasting is uh, is being utilized. So that's definitely something to watch in in community radio for sure. I mean, and the one thing I'll note, having been in community radio stations and talked with people in many community radio stations, is we can talk about this innovation. And it's very good, and innovation around podcasting. But I know sometimes there are constituents within a station, volunteers, who view these things as threats. That, you know, often that they will take away resources from the primary air signal um, or that, that it means that eventually their station is going to abandon being on the air or abandon them and people who aren't able to kind of adapt to a new kind of online universe. And so I'm certain that's something uh, that always weighs in the balance. And it, and, it, mm-hmm. and I think it's one reason why uh, commercial radio in particular, on top of consolidation, why it was so slow to adapt really to, to online media. Right. Yeah, I, I had some side conversations about just this very topic at the conference. And- so were people expressing their concerns or the resistance that they're feeling? So, you know, just like some side conversations about maybe some people at their stations who might be resistant Uh to embracing new technology in particular and, uh, you know, things like apps and making sure that your website is mobile friendly. These are sort of best practices for all of us. But if not everyone at your station is is embracing the current technology or or wants to allocate resources to it, really, right. Yeah, they might not understand why it's important. Yeah. Um, I would add time shifting your best content to that list. I think I think there's a yeah. lot of people uh, in in the generation that's coming that's coming up behind us and is going to be the audience for these stations. Um, they expect to to be able to click and listen. 
uh, right. when, when yeah. they choose to. Yeah, so archives and apps, um, all of these things are being incorporated, you know, especially at college radio stations. And, you know, you have to navigate through all of the various rules. So you can't podcast all of your content, um, you know, due to licensing, et cetera. Music, yes. Music is something that you specifically can't podcast without climbing through a legal morass. Right. Um, But but you can have archives of some sort. Right. There are archives and there are, um, there's like operations like Radio Free America, which provides this service to college and community radio stations. Uh, Jennifer, you're telling us about uh, the past and future of community radio, as you discussed at a panel at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters Conference for 2019 down in San Diego, California, here on Radio Survivor. Um, What's one more thing? What's one more kind of uh, innovation that you see non-commercial stations engaging in that that points to the future? Well, I mean, hyper-local, we talk about this constantly, uh, that, you know, local has always been one of radio's big strengths, you know, live and local programming. Because the signal covers a particular area. It is by definition local. Yeah. And especially with low-power FM, you know, you have stations that are designed to be hyper-local. So I, and we see this with so many things, not just content, but you know, in times of emergency, having a very locally focused station providing emergency coverage can be critical. Uh, local news, like school board meetings, um, providing programming in local languages that are pertinent. So is this new? Not necessarily, right? But this is something that with with low-power FMs, you're seeing a station that can actually really narrowly focus their programming. So why do you um, say this is the future then? I'm curious to know um, if this is something which, you know, how are you connecting this up? Why do you say this is the future? What is it about it that that becomes more pertinent? Well, I, th- I think that, you know, especially with the trends we've seen in mainstream commercial radio becoming more and more consolidated and more and more you know, programming that's been so less local for all intents and purposes. And I would, I would add into the mix that even that podcasts are more and more of a, of of a national medium when they're the, the way that people conceive of them, the way they're listened to, they're, they're not local. They could be, there's nothing stopping them from being hyper local, but I don't think most people, uh, when they think about podcasts, they think about national, international very, shows a, a, you know very little of what you hear on the radio dial is focused on your local community even if you listen to say a local public radio station you might be hearing a lot of national syndicated content yeah. on that station so that's really something that community radio stations can excel in is providing very localized content for their communities that and there's a widening they can't gap get anywhere else right and there's a widening gap so you're sort of pointing out to the the trend up to now in in most of mainstream broadcasting both commercial and non-commercial has been towards the national and non-local right right and and we we were marking back you know going back 20 30 40 years when it was actually the opposite it tended to be very local. And even if uh, people were responding to national charts and the billboard charts, uh, you had a local DJ in a local studio actually spinning the records, taking requests, or at least 
you know, using that to inform decisions that are being made on playlists as opposed to being programmed from hundreds of miles away. And so you're, you're sort of saying that this is, even though mainstream radio has moved away from this, that hasn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily reflect the need has gone away. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and even these big commercial stations are having to figure out how to explain that they have some sort of connection to the local community. So um, I think even these conglomerate stations try to make some sort of nod toward that, but it, huh. you know, it's very surface compared to what you can do if you have live people in your radio station, in your community producing the content. Right. And we've mentioned these sorts of things before, but they bear repeating, you know, uh, when there's wildfires in your community. And I know that uh, KLLG uh, in California as a station, I met folks from from that station at the Grassroots Radio Conference here in Portland last year, uh, really doubled down, not not only just in, in sort of the emergency coverage, but in actually helping the community cope and heal in the aftermath. Right. And they were a very new low power FM station, just sort of getting their bearings and, you know, having to jump in and, and they admitted that there were things that maybe they could do better next time. And, you know, just having to jump in and and get thrown into an emergency like that, where, you know, people at your station are affected immediately by the fires. And this is in Northern California. Um, Willits. Willits. And, and, but I I think what, what was interesting to me about it is that they didn't consider the job done when the fires were out. Right. I mean, there's there's so much that happens in the aftermath of these disasters. So, yeah, ongoing healing and ongoing work to make sure that they are providing um, a valuable resource going forward, you know, for the aftermath of the disaster, but also planning for, you know, the next event. Yeah. Right. So that is just a few of the highlights from the National Federation of Community Broadcasters Conference that you attended, uh, Jennifer, down in San Diego, California. Thanks for for attending on behalf of Radio Survivor. And you also got a chance to see some uh, stations, some college stations in San Diego. And here's a fact I did not know that you told me that I, I need you to explain that college stations are not on terrestrial radio in that city. They are not. Well, one is on HD. So does that count? I guess it counts, except they don't own the station, right? They're on somebody's HD2 or 3 channel, right? It's not their own station. Right. Yeah. So so there, there are colleges that have public radio stations on terrestrial radio in San Diego. But there isn't a student-focused college radio station in San Diego with a regular terrestrial radio station. And yet some of these stations have been around since the 70s or earlier, right? Yeah, yeah. A number of them started in the 60s as carrier current stations. And um, and interestingly, a couple of them were on campuses that had more educational or public radio stations operating on the FM dial. And, and students started up there and students started up carrier current AM radio stations to have a student voice on campus. So this is interesting to me. Because I don't, I can't think of a single other metroplex the size of San Diego where this is the case, where there are not terrestrial student-run radio stations. At least one. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, there it, are. It's an interesting there, gap. I know there are other cities 
I've been to other cities where that's the case. The size of San Diego? I don't know. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's where I, I, because, uh, you know. Paul Paul is tempted to draw a line that San Diego is the biggest city without a terrestrial country. Well, I know. Especially given that the the station infrastructure is there. Yeah. Right? That they have, um, I know cities like cities like Portland, Oregon, college stations have come and gone. Portland is smaller than San Diego. Right, Portland is smaller than San Diego. And it doesn't seem like this is not a case where these stations existed for a while and went away. No, they've existed the entire time. They just started out on carrier current, which is AM broadcast through the electrical wires of of a campus or a building. So it can be received in a very uh, prescribed area, but isn't broadcast outside of that area. Yeah. Um, this is unusual. And so it seems, though, that there's, that there's probably like a technical reason for this. Well, I mean, yes. Uh, so San Diego is very close to Mexico, and and I'm not an ex I'm not an engineering expert, but um, it sounds like it's been a bit more difficult to get non commercial radio stations on the FM dial in San Diego because mm. of rules about terrestrial radio signals close to the border. Yeah, you have to share. I mean, it's basically that bandwidth. That has to be negotiated with Mexico, right? It's shared. You know, uh, the the airwaves do not stop at the border, and so you know, and and in and say Mexico, um, the part of the band we call the reserve band from eighty eight to ninety two, which is all non commercial. Uh, that's not non commercial in Mexico. It's also not non commercial in Canada. Hmm. That's just a U.S. phenomenon. Yeah. So I mean, this is like if I had if I had more time, I would have loved to have gone across the border and visited, you know, because you hear about (laughs) their stations broadcasting into Mexico from the U.S. and vice versa. Or or stations where, like, the studio is in the U.S. and the, the, but the actual station is in Mexico broadcasting in English. Right. They used to call them the border blasters back in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, So I think that would be, that would be fascinating to explore kind of what it's like to be broadcasting on on the terrestrial radio in a border area. And, you know, San Diego would be a great example of that. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, on, on think, this trip. Oh, I was gonna say, well, border radio is definitely on the list of show topics, if not more than one show topic. I know my favorite border radio episode that we've ever done is our Irish pirate radio episode. I would encourage yeah. listeners to go check out the archives and we're going to have to wrap up the radio version of Radio Survivor today, but if you enjoyed uh, the beginning of our conversation about college radio in San Diego, go ahead and tune in to our podcast, Radio Survivor is heard as a podcast, anywhere where you can get your podcast. It is always free, and uh, on today's podcast, we're going to wrap up the conversation about college radio in San Diego. If you want to email us, you can contact Radio Survivor. Our email is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We're also on all the other kinds of social media channels where you enjoy uh, communicating with your friends and family and, and radiosurvivor.com blogs. My name is Eric Klein. On behalf of Jennifer Waits and Paul Reismandel, thank you so much for listening. And now, now we're podcasting, and so let's. Uh, we there's no more time. There's no more time constraints. It, it's much easier if we can just have the clock and not have to do a lot of surgery later, or, or awesome. easier for Eric. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. Clearly, there's a lot to talk about in San Diego, and on, on some of my most recent trips, I have not seen college radio stations. So. I was anxious when when visiting San Diego to focus solely on college radio stations. So 
that's why I wasn't able to explore like the whole border radio phenomenon. Yeah, because my you had enough on your list. I had an agenda, which was you know see four, see the four college radio stations. So now, that now that I we're podcasting, I can put my, I can sort of exploratory ask questions I don't know the answers to, or that I might, uh, it might be silly. Like what kind of, what kind of college radio or community radio or radio at all is there in northern Mexico? Like, is is there college radio in Mexico? In Mexico, yes. Yeah. How exciting. Yeah, and Never I don't know about northern it. Mexico, so right. I didn't... I'm just you know, thinking about I, the borders right now. You know, Mexico yeah. So here's an opportunity away. for you all to tell us what we don't know. Yeah. Uh, email us at uh, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. I mean, certainly the, um, the Autonomous University of Mexico, Mexico City, which is an enormous yeah. university, has, has a college station. I assume that Mexico City would have one, but that's, that's clearly far enough that's, away from yeah, Texas not the and border. California and yes, Arizona correct. that we wouldn't right. hear it. Uh, does Tijuana have college radio? <laughs> Tijuana is the sister yeah, city would... to San Diego. You can cross yeah, the border. Yeah, what is, what is the closest college radio station that I could visit just over the border? Yeah, how fun. Um, I'll have to dig into that. Well, and... And, you know, 90, I didn't grow up in Southern California, but I know that 91X, uh, that was a, a prominent, a station that, you know, people talk about for its experimental music programming and kind of like modern rock. And, and in English. Yeah. But, but based in Tijuana. Neat. So, yeah, there's, you know, been interesting music coming across the border for decades. Um, but, yeah, I mean, on to... The four college stations I saw, I saw a couple that were at community colleges, one that was at San Diego State and one that was at UC San Diego. And the community college stations are were more like training-oriented lab-type radio stations Great. that were part of, you know, communications-type programs. Mm-hmm. And then the, the other two stations, um, San Diego States, which is KCR, and... UC San Diego's, which is KSDT, those are student-run stations, uh, you know, more of the uh, the imaginary college radio station in your head would be what those two stations are <laughs> Student-run, like. eclectic, yeah. uh, and it's interesting to me that they all started in the late 60s, or at least KCR and KSDT, both started in the late 60s, yep. right? Both started as carrier current. Mm-hmm. Right, which which would have meant likely at the times, if you were in a dorm on yeah. campus, I, or or in any campus building, you could have tuned in on so your AM radio. Which, I, as a student in 1968 or 69, you would have had. I lived on the campus of UCSD in 1995. Okay, uh, I oh. went I went to UCSD for one year, and I was not aware of a college radio uh, presence. Uh, I'm trying to think if I brought a clock radio, right? If I had an AM radio in my possession, it was 1995. It is mm. possible. But um, yeah, college radio was not on my radar. And I don't think I, they definitely uh, didn't make themselves known to the students in my dorm. You uh, wow. see, UCSD is a large campus. There's a lot of different uh, little communities where people live across the whole, the whole. Yeah. Uh, well, and campus. and the station there is in. Kind of, I guess, I guess it's a more off the radar location. It's, it's in this sort of old student center 
area mm-hmm. uh, with a bunch of other student organizations, kind of like-minded student organizations are nearby. Um, my understanding is it's sort of a mellower part of campus. And, hmm. and, and so, yeah, it may... It may, if you're not going to that part of campus, maybe you wouldn't have known about it. But I believe they would have been on FM cable mm. when you were there in the '90s. Um, so, so there were people that were aware of it. Off yeah. Campus. Well, every you know, in, in the in the campus building where I lived, I the um, they provided cable to uh, to everybody. So if you brought your if you brought your box, your idiot box from home. You could plug it in, and so yeah, it's. Yeah, I just so you, uh, you I just wasn't focused on on the radio experience at UCSD. Well, it's not it's not uncommon for people on a college campus to have no idea that there's a radio station. So my next college, I definitely was aware of college radio and uh, enjoyed listening to it. So there you go. Yeah, um, no, it's a smaller campus, and and I would argue a, a, a more prominent station. Like it's more prominent Evergreen, in its yeah. community. The Evergreen uh, State Olympia. College has a has a yeah. The Evergreen State College uh, chaos K A O S community radio station uh, is one that Jennifer has toured more than once, right, Jennifer? I believe you've written it up more than once. Just no, I've only been there once. Okay, because I feel like yeah, maybe it was just that I practically toured it after you did. Um, it's yeah, it's been around, and you can hear it as you uh, people who live in the city of Olympia, Washington, can tune into that station all over town. So yeah, it does have a larger presence. And they had a speaker outside, um, as did yeah. the UC San Diego station has a speaker outside its studio, too. So if you're out hanging out in the general area, you can hear it. And these two stations are all online now. So maybe we talk about the carrier current, which may or may not current still be existing. But principally, the they're online yeah. stations at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All the stations I visited can be heard online. Um KCR at San Diego State still has an AM broadcast, which may be carrier current. I I still need to get to the bottom of that, but they are apparently still on AM as well as how fun on... that there's still carrier current in the world. It seems to be the case, though. Every time you've brought up, it seems to me every time you brought up a case of a station where there is a possibly a vestigial AM carrier current signal. It's always a matter of like, we're pretty sure, but no one quite knows. <laughs> it's just I know. Like, it's just, just a, a box zombie, in a closet somewhere soaking up zombie uh, radio soaking station. up voltage off the uh, grid. Exactly. I know. Um, AM and they're radio. also still on um, still on residence hall TVs and digital cable, too. Right. So, I mean, this is – if you look back at the history of college radio, a lot of stations started as carrier current, and then they added – cable um and suddenly could be outside of campus broadcasting into the local community so it's really interesting to visit stations that are still using not only carrier current but also cable to reach you know this other mm-hmm. audience so yeah I, probably because once you get it in place right uh there's a lot of it, inertia if you will right yeah. to to not necessarily move it away unless some there's some big change in your local cable company or something like that yeah and i just think it's really cool <laughs> i love that they're in all these different places um so another another interesting carrier current story is um so i visited grossmont college they have a station called griffin radio which is part of their media communications program and 
it started maybe in the 1970s as a carrier current station. And the general manager, faculty advisor, told me that the carrier current, he never really understood the deal with that because it's a community college with no dorms. And the carrier mm. current was apparently only in the library, mm. <laughs> which he thought was funny. Like, why would you have something broadcasting into a library where you are supposed to be quiet? Nice. Your little AM headphone receiver. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so I like eventually he, he dispensed with the, the carrier current. Oh, um, I'm, I'm going to just go out in a, imag- a fictional world and, and guess that somebody built that because they, f- they were interested in building it. That it was, that, you know, they built it in the library because they wanted to build it. Right. And that's where they could do it. Yeah. And that's, right? what, that's yeah. where there was space. And, and it made sense. And maybe they were friends with the head librarian and they were allowed to or they thought it was cool too. And that's how these things happen in yeah. universities. But I can also imagine in a world where you go to the library to check the internet, uh, you could imagine a world where you go to the library to, yeah, to, to put your headphones right. on and listen to the radio. There yeah. are people who go to the library to listen to internet radio. Yeah. They just check out a pair of headphones. Yeah, that's true. And and as we know, you know, in a number of our episodes, we've talked about interesting things happening in libraries related to radio. So yeah. I guess that just, it just comes full circle to think about a carrier current station broadcasting into a library. Hmm. So like happens. one thing that was really different that I hadn't seen at any other radio station was at UC San Diego's KSDT. They have a music practice room hmm. that that's sort of a separate project at the station and it has its own membership of around 50 to 70 people. Um, so people get trained on the room and, and apparently it's the only student music practice space that's accessible to people outside of the music department. Hmm, So it's a service they provide. They have drums, a piano, guitar, percussion instruments. Is it to support like local bands and student bands or? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess do they, can they broadcast from there? Do you know? I don't know if they can broadcast, but they can record in there. So it's a place to practice. And also it's a way that, you know, they're bringing musicians in uh, who can, you know, then ostensibly you can, crossover and maybe do a collaboration or something on the hmm. air. So it it's something that started a few years ago. A, a really passionate student wanted to to create this practice space. And, you know, I've been to radio stations before, been to college radio stations before that that have studios with pianos and instruments. Uh, and it's just, you know, helping to tighten that connection between music that's getting played on the station and then musicians who who might come in and out of the studio to perform. So I think it, it's just really interesting that they're doing that. And, um, uh, you know, and another theme that that I've been thinking a lot about is college radio stations who try to figure out, you know, how to attract more students to their station and, by having these extra services like practice rooms, that's a way to introduce people to your radio station also. Yeah, right. And, and it's sort of like creating a culture around your station that maybe is more inviting to people who don't have this 
necessarily intrinsic interest just in radio. And in my experience in college radio and as a college radio advisor, you know, I, I definitely saw that, that there were students who got involved in the station less because they were intrinsically interested in radio, but because they were interested in like live bands playing and mm. they want to learn how to engineer. Yeah. And so if there's like right. a live band show, they would learn to do that or because they were Gosh. interested in booking shows. You can imagine a world that a young person doesn't even know that that's what radio is for. Right. Mm-hmm. That they'd have to be informed. Yeah. Live bands can play on this. Right. Exactly. Because you have no example yeah. that you grew up with or were exposed yeah. to. Um, or got involved because they were, you know, they were really good graphic artists and someone came to them looking for a t shirt design and that brought them in. You know, I think it's interesting to have all these different touch points. And I think it's a good lesson for, say, a community radio station to have as well. To, you know, to think about your station as more than just a transmitter and a studio and a microphone and some and some music players, but as opportunities for multiple types of engagements. And there's many ways for people to get involved in, in, in community media and to think of yourselves more as a community media platform than, than only radio. And that uh, all these other things are, are on the table uh, for your enterprise, for your station, that might actually help to, to grow uh, your resources, not compete for resources right yeah yeah definitely well jennifer thanks uh for this little tour of san diego um and and for the nfcb there um you know i think we need to tell everybody though before we go that we're making a zine that you can get (laughs) let's make this very straightforward we're making a zine full of interesting things that look great on paper that are not going to be on web, that are not going to be on our blog, that are exclusive for our supporters, people who support Radio Survivor at Patreon, patreon.com. Folks who are giving $5 or more to us a month will get this zine in August. So if you're signed up by August 1, the minute you've made that first $5 payment, you qualify, we're going to send you the zine handmade by your, by your Radio Survivors. We have some fun pictures and stories, um, and we're going to try and take advantage of the medium. Mm-hmm. So this is not just going to be uh, reprinted web content. This is not blog to book. This is just this is this is uh, podcast to zine or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I like uh, that direction. Yeah. So we'd love to give you one. Please support us so we can continue to do the great work we're doing here. We think it's great. Uh, we're, you know, we're like community radio. We're mostly volunteer. We're low in expenses, low to the ground, and we need your help to keep doing what we do. And you do that by helping us out. And it helps make the reason we use Patreon it helps make our expenses a little bit more predictable or makes the income a little bit more predictable. Um, and they provide a lot of tools to help us interact with you all. We do lots more for our Patreon uh, supporters here and there. Um, but this is the big one that we're doing right now to help us get to 100 patrons. We're, we're creeping up, but we're still a ways to go for till August 1. So please uh, go to patreon.com slash radio survivor and consider helping us out. If you can't make it to that $5 level, even $1 a month really helps us out. We'll definitely say thank you. But uh, Zine comes in at five. And I think it's a bargain, personally. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and thank you to everyone who supported us so far. It's been it's been a real uh, it's a real boost to know that you're out there and that, that you care about the work we're doing. So thank you for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.